Romans chapter 3. We're, we're starting tonight to uh, look at, at some of the big themes of what it means to be a Reformed church, and, and uh, we're really looking at the first of what is known as the five points of Calvinism. So, we're, we're thinking tonight about how, how broken we are, how things are wrong with us, and uh, we will understand as, as we read this that what God says about us is very, very different than what we hear around us within the world. So, we're going to hear from God's Word, knowing that this is true. It's from Genesis, or from uh, Romans chapter 3, and we're going to read from verse 9, uh, verse 9 to verse 18. Romans chapter 3, verse 9 to 18. If you've got one of the Red Pew Bibles, there are uh, Bibles in the pews. One of the Red Pew Bibles, it's page 1130, 1130. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away and have become together worthless." There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Amen. We trust that God will blessed to us. Well, we're going to get to Romans chapter 3 in a moment or two, so it would be helpful perhaps for you to uh, turn it open and have it ready. We'll be looking at it a little bit more closely uh, in uh, a few minutes, but we're thinking tonight about this theme of, of total depravity. We're in this foundation series in our evenings in which we're, we're really trying to explore and, and examine some of the big foundation stones of what we believe, things that, that underpin uh, what our, our church is and what our church does. And, and tonight we're, we're looking at, at what we sometimes call the doctrines of grace. Uh, sometimes we call them the five points of Calvinism. And I think it's important to say that, that uh, Calvinism is much, much more than five points that Calvin himself never uh, sought to summarize his teaching in this way particularly, and they came along in a, in a particular circumstance that we're going to look at in a moment. But these five points have often been used as a summary of the particular emphases of what it means to be a, a Reformed or, or a, a Calvinistic church. And, and they're, they're much expanded in, for example, our standards, the Shorter Catechism and the Westminster Confession. And one of the great places that you could go to, to read some more about this is to, to look up those things online. Uh, you'll find them online uh, freely available and to, to look at, at how they take these truths and, and expand them in the most uh, remarkably helpful uh, ways. Now, tonight what we're going to do is give a little bit of an introduction to these five points and explore a little where they came from. And then we're going to look at the first uh, total depravity. And really, this is dealing with the question, uh, what is wrong with us as people? Or is there anything wrong with us as people? What are we like as people? And I think we would be the first to admit that there's clearly something 
wrong with us as people. Our world admits that. And the question is, how bad is it? Now, now let me say why all of this is important. This is important. Uh, not that we want to simply increase our, our knowledge, but this is to really help us ground ourselves in the Christian life. And I, I really do think that as we wrestle with these things, and, and some of them will be things to wrestle with, as we wrestle with these things, it, it will really help us plant our feet. You, you know, if you're, you're about to be handed a heavy weight or, or somebody's going to pass something over to you, you, you just check your feet to make sure that you're, you're well planted before you, 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 you pick this thing up or that it gets handed over to you. And, and this is really what we're, we're going to find with these truths. They're going to help us plant our feet so that our, sta our stance is solid and genuinely they help us face whatever is ahead of us in our lives. So, so that's, that's where we're going. But, but first of all, we need to say a little about where these five points came from. And to do that, we need to take a little bit of a journey back in history. Some of you love history. Some of you think that anything past yesterday lunchtime is not to be thought about at all. So, so if that's you, bear with us. We'll pick you up again in a couple of minutes. But uh, first of all, let's go back to the Reformation. So we, 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 we're going to pick up a couple of sort of key things that lead into our thinking this evening. So the Reformation, Martin Luther, we often date the Reformation to uh, 31st of October, 1517 when he nailed his, his 95 theses to the, uh, the castle door at, at, at Wittenberg. And uh, a, he was a part of a, a stream, one of the significant people in a stream in which we stand today. Now, Luther, and, and then we'll come to Calvin in a moment, these, these folk, uh, what they taught in and of themselves is not of first importance, but it is of importance in as much it, is, it was and is a recovery of what the Bible teaches. And that's really how we should think of the Reformation, a recovery of the truth. And those who recovered it, we actually find that they worked incredibly hard at expressing it, and they expressed it really thoughtfully and really clearly. And that's why what they say is so often very, very helpful. So if you like, we're not directly, first of all, interested in Calvinism in and of itself, but we are because it, it expresses, we believe, really clearly and accurately what the Bible says, and therefore what is true, what, what God thinks. Well, sometime after uh, Calvin, or after Luther came Calvin, and uh, a, he was French, he spent most of his ministry teaching in Geneva, and many came from around Europe to be taught there. And they spread out from Geneva, and they brought these truths, these recovered, now Reformation truths, uh, to various places in, in Europe. And th there was lots of politics at the time, and, and some countries picked them up and, and went with them, and, and, and other countries didn't, and in many places there was lots of turmoil. And one of the, the countries that did largely uh, pick up the, the Reformed teaching was Holland, was, was the Netherlands. And, and so the, the, the Dutch church became a, a reformed uh, Calvinistic church. Well, in the late 16th century, a young Dutch Protestant called Joseph Arminius went to 
went to Geneva to study theology. Calvin was dead by that point, but he studied under one of his successors, and eventually he returned to the Netherlands, he became a pastor, and eventually he became a university lecturer. But he began to, to drift away from the, the orthodox uh, teaching that he'd received in Geneva, uh, and he took a number of people with him, and they became known as Arminians, after Ar Arminius. And so, the, the, the Netherlands at the time went through a sort of a, a religious battle, a religious crisis. And, and on the one hand, there was the sort of the Orthodox Calvinists, and on the other hand, there were these uh, folk called the Arminians. And at one point, because the, uh, the, the church and the state were so tied up together, it looked as if a civil war might break out. And eventually, the government uh, ordered the church to meet and sort it out. And they had a, a great church gathering, a sort of giant general assembly at a place called Dort. And we call that the Synod. It was called a Synod. It was the Synod of Dort. There were representatives there, not only from the, the Dutch church largely, but from other Reformed churches from about eight countries, including Britain, actually. Now, by this stage, Joseph Arminius had died. It was his followers who were putting their views across. And at that stage, the, the, uh, and at the synod, their, their views were rejected. They were challenged to show that their views had biblical support. Uh, and the synod decided, no, this is not what the Bible teaches. And, and those Arminians had put forward certain things. And in response, the synod made a, a number of responses in these five areas. So, so that's important. These five points that we're going to be thinking about were never really, first of all, designed to sort of uh, uh, summarize Calvinism. They were responses to the, 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 the uh, points made by the Arminians. But as I have said, the, the, the church has, has restated them, and, and they are a useful summary of some of the great themes of grace that run through the Scriptures, and they've been known as the five points of Calvin. They've been summed up and here they are. They've been summed up. Uh, so, let, let's mention what, what they are, first of all. So, total depravity, that's what we're looking at tonight. Unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints. Now, if you look at the first letters of those, you'll notice that they spell tulip. And you know that the Dutch like their tulips. And in a remarkable uh, example of providence, uh, which... In all seriousness, we had no knowledge of it all. Uh, uh, here we are. Uh, so, tulips. Uh, now, <coughs> thank you, Katrina. That was very, very prescient of you. Um, so, so uh, here we are. These are the, the five points. So, we're, we're going to look at these perhaps over three uh, weeks, all being well. Now, the first, as I said, is total depravity. And, and this is, as I said, really taking us to the area of a, a, a teaching about mankind. What are we like as people? A doctrine of man. Uh, what are we like as human beings? We know there's something wrong with us. Just how broken are we? And really, this is saying we are very, very broken indeed. Now, straight away, what we're going to say here is going to sound to us quite alien because we have broken up. We, we, we've grown up in a world that tells us that we're actually very good and that we could be better if only our circumstances were different. So last Saturday, we, we had an event here, uh, and Marty Cowan, uh, who teaches in Union College, Marty was speaking, and uh, he 
used an illustration that I found very helpful, and I emailed him, and I, I got it off him this week, and he spoke about a, a, a French philosopher, writer, thinker called Jean-Jacques Rousseau. It might be a name that some of you have heard. I, I'd heard of him. I really didn't know an awful lot about him, but he was that French writer and thinker who was widely credited as laying the foundation of the French Revolution, even though he died shortly before it. And Marty quoted an experience that he described in a letter. This is what he said. A violent palpitation oppressed me. Unable to walk for difficulty in breathing, I sat down under one of the trees in the avenue and passed the next half hour in such a state of agitation that when I got up, I found that the front of my jacket was wet with tears, although I had no memory of shedding any. Ah, if ever I had been able to write down what I saw and felt as I sat under that tree, with what clarity would I have exposed the contradictions of our social system? With what force would I have demonstrated all the abuses of our institutions? With what simplicity would I have demonstrated that man is naturally good and has only become bad because of those institutions? Now, you can see what he's saying in this ecstatic experience that he had, he was saying, I've come to understand that man is good, and he's only bad because of the environment that he exists in. So, in other words, if we could change the environment, if we could change the, the government, and they had a good go at doing that in France, if we could change the government, or man's family, or, or his health, or society, then all would be well. His, his goodness would flourish and would shine through. And in many, idea, in many ways, although that is an old idea, going back to the French Revolution, it really underpins so much of the world in which we live. It is an idea that runs strongly through education, through politics, through culture, through the media. And ever, whenever we hear that, we're sort of programmed by our culture to say, yes, of course. But as we saw last week when we looked at how God speaks, as we looked at the Bible, what matters is not our, our hunch about these things. It's not what our experience suggests to us or what we reason or think. What matters is what God says to us, what He says about us. What matters is, tr is what is true. And the Bible tells us that we are not naturally good, but naturally we are totally depraved. So, so this is really running against, very significantly running against the culture in which we exist. Now, what does that mean? Well, here's a little running definition. It's not a great definition, but it's, it's something to sort of pin our our, our thoughts around. What does it mean to be totally depraved? It means that sin has affected every aspect of who we are so that we're unable to move towards God, okay? Sin has affected every aspect of who we are so that we're unable to move towards God. Now, some things that it doesn't mean. It does not mean that we are as bad as we could possibly be. That, that's one of the unfortunate implications of the word total, isn't it? Um, immediately we think that's what it means. We're, we're, we're as bad as we could possibly be in every area of our lives. But, but that would actually make us like demons. The demons are as bad as they can possibly be, but, but that's not the case with us. It means, rather, that we are affected by sin 
in our entirety, in our totality, in the totality of our being. In other words, every aspect of us as people is affected by sin. There's no little sort of pure, white, a, a, a perfect bit of us. So, so, when the Bible talks about sin and how it affects us, it talks about our wills, it talks about our understanding, our minds, our emotions, our loves, our words, our actions. There's no part of us that is not affected by sin. Now, because that word uh, total tends to make us think we're as bad as we could possibly be, some people have suggested it would be better to call it radical depravity or, or radical corruption. R.C. Sproul goes with radical corruption. You lose your tulips, of course, at that point, and, and uh, uh, that's why probably it's a good thing to remember the mnemonic, but actually think of it uh, with the radical word. And the radical word's helpful because it talks about radical as a word that comes from the idea of root, and it says that really sin goes down to the roots of us as people in every part of us. Sometimes people speak of total inability. We'll see that in a moment. And that's emphasizing the second part of that little sentence there, unable to move towards God. Sin has so affected us that we're not able to come towards God by ourselves. So, the same idea is referred to with a couple of different titles. So, so it doesn't mean we're as bad as we could possibly be, nor does it mean we're all bad in the same way. Clearly, there are times when sin is more evident, where it is less restrained among people. There are places where that is the case. There are people who demonstrate sin more clearly than others, so it doesn't mean that we're all the same. Nor does it mean that people do not do things that are good in and of themselves. It, it is possible for people to do things that are, that are good. We, we see that all the time. Some, some of our, our uh, uh, friends and, and neighbors who, who don't profess to be Christians at all are, are genuinely kind and, and, and good and, and do lots of, of, of good things, even though they are, as we are, totally depraved by, by nature. So, there's a quote that I've come across by a, a, a couple of uh, different people at different times uh, from a the theologian called Lorraine Bettner, and he says this. He, he, I'll read this out because it's, it's, you'll never read that, but it's, it's quite useful. <clears throat> the doctrine of total inability, he calls it total inability, which declares that men are dead in sin does not mean that all men are equally bad nor that any man is as bad as he could be, nor that any one is entirely destitute of virtue, nor that human nature is, its, is in itself, nor that man's spirit is inactive, and much less does it mean that the body is dead. What it does mean is that since the fall, man rests under the curse of sin, that he is actuated by wrong principles, and that he is wholly unable to love God or do anything meriting salvation. Okay, so you see that? That sort of sin affecting every part of us, leaving us unable to move towards God. Now, <clears throat> there are lots of places that we could turn to in the Bible to see this. This is just the, the sort of the, the working assumption that runs all the way through the Scriptures. Uh, but there are some places that we could uh, at least point to to give us a few examples. So, Genesis 6, verse 5. We've got a, a wee list of these verses. Uh, Genesis 6, verse 5. Um, 
uh, this is just before the flood, and, and uh, God says, or uh, the Bible says, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Now, there's not a lot of room for a wiggle in there, is there? The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Quite remarkable. That's Genesis 6, verse 5. Jeremiah 17, 9, very well-known verse speaking about the heart, which, of course, is in the Bible that sort of wellspring of life, that, that motivating center of who we are. 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Then Paul in Ephesians 2 and verse 1. Ephesians 2, 1 to 10 is a really key passage in thinking about this, but this is how it starts. Ephesians 2, 1, Paul says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. So we'll see this in a moment, but he doesn't say uh, you were sick or you were weak or you were ignorant and in need of education. He says you were dead in your transgressions and sins. That's how far and how a significantly sin has affected us. But one of the most significant passages, most helpful passages, is actually the passage that we read earlier that hopefully you have open, uh, is Romans chapter 3 and uh, from verse 9. Now, you'll, <clears throat> you'll remember what Paul is doing in these early chapters of Romans, perhaps. Uh, overall, he is arguing right the way through Romans. He's arguing really from a problem to a solution. And so, in the early chapters of Romans, he's really saying, it doesn't matter who you are, uh, whether you are a Gentile or whether you are a Jew, you are in dreadful need of a Savior. You stand under the, the right judgment of God, and you really need to be rescued. It doesn't matter who you are, what, uh, whether you're religious or irreligious, whether you're uh, Jewish or, or, or pagan Roman or whoever you are, you, you stand under the judgment of God, and you need to be rescued. And the culmination of that argument, the sort of the bad news, as it were, of Romans is in chapter 3. And what he does here in these verses is he quotes from several different places in the Old Testament, mostly from the Psalms. And even by doing that, he's, he's really sort of saying, look, I'm just summarizing everything the Bible says about us. I'm just pulling from here and there and, and showing you that this is the universal opinion of God, the universal declaration of God on what we are like as people. So, this is not some isolated verse. This is the assumption that runs through what God says. So, let's think about it as we read it here. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have become together, they have, they have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Now, you notice the, the re repetition of the no one and the not even one. So, in other words, Paul is saying, look, there are no exceptions to what is being said here. This is the universal description of people in every age and in every place. In every age and in every place. Only Jesus is the exception to this description. And straight away, this goes against the hunch that, that 
many people have about how God does things as far as salvation is concerned. Many people think like this. Maybe some of us will think like this uh, whenever I describe it, that, that God looks down upon the earth and He says, well, it's pretty much a mess over here. It's pretty much a mess over here, and it's a mess here. But there are some people, there's one and there's one. There are some people who are doing better than others, reasonably well. They're better than average. And I will come to them. I will reward them, or even I will save them. And that's what lots of people just sort of default to, to thinking. And it's, it's rather like our experience when we go into uh, Tesco's late on on the day and we're trying to get a cabbage, you know, and everybody else has got all the decent cabbages. And, and, and you've got a big tray of cabbages and, and they're all pretty bad. And you, you hoke through them and you hope that one of them will be good enough. And that's sort of how, how lots of people sort of think that, that God works. He, he, he looks at the, the tray of humanity and he thinks, well, there'll be a few here that are better than the rest that I can work with. But, but no, here's this universal description of humanity that says no one is good enough. So the picture is that the whole tray is rotten and it looks like there is nothing that is salvage, salvageable. Now, so, so, so that just, this just runs against that sort of idea. And you can see here that the corruption that is in us comes from the inside out. You see those descriptions of, of the hostility of our words, verse 13, their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit, the poison of vipers is on their lips, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. So it, it's just sort of charting the paths of the words from throat to lips, uh, to, 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 and then a summary, their mouths are full of cursing. Uh, <clears throat> this is Twitter, isn't it? Some of you will have had awful things said about you and to you. And most of us know that we have said awful things. Haven't you had that experience of, of being in a discussion somewhere and then thinking, I'm glad nobody heard that? Or, or if you're a minister, you're talking to someone and then you go, is my microphone still on? You know? Because the, the words, they, they, they come from, from deep within and they reflect our, our hearts. These rotten words come from, from rotten insides. And, and then it goes on, as you can see in the description that Paul gives. There's conflict all around. Their feet are swift to shed blood. It's just true, isn't it? What, what, what people touch tends to be ruined. The way of peace they do not know. We just can't create it. No human utopia has ever worked. Why? Because the answer lies in the God whom we are fleeing. Now, you'll notice how these early verses say sin affects us with regards to God in, in, in different ways. So, for example, it says there is no one righteous, not even one. So, we're not righteous. Morally, we don't measure up to God's standards at all. And it's not just the, the hint is here or the, the impression is here that we're, 
we're, we're not just missing it by a little bit, but we are just unrighteous. So we see it from our perspective, and we think that some folks are good and some folks are bad, and, and we're somewhere on the spectrum. But, but God sees us as unrighteous. Our, our minds are affected. This is really important. There is no one who understands. So, so one of the things that sin does is it affects people's ability to think properly, to think with God at the center. Now, we see that so clearly in these days. Don't, don't you sometimes watch the news or, or, or read the paper and think, this world has gone mad? Don't these people see how foolish and ridiculous the things that they are saying are? Sin affects our thinking. But, but here, the particular bit of our thinking that is particularly in mind is our ability to understand God, to see our need and His greatness. And, and you'll see this with, with some of your friends, some of the people that you've been praying for, and, and maybe you've had an opportunity to, to speak to them, to witness to them, and, and you, you explain the gospel to them, and you tell them how that has changed your life, and, and, and it, it all seems so, so logical, and it, and it is. And, and they just don't get it, or they say, well, that's okay for you, but I, I just don't get it. You, you see, it's part of the fall. Maybe some of us here just, just don't get it. We can't see how it all fits together. I just want to say to you that that, that is evidence of the Bible speaking about us in a way that is true, that, that we just cannot see the kingdom of God, as, as Jesus said to Nicodemus. And, and, and what that also means, of course, is that we can't think our way to God. So the wise man is not wise enough to get there by his intellect. So our minds are effective, and our wills are effective. There, there, there is no one who seeks God, and that's really important. Again, we, we, we tend to think that we've got a hunch about the way God does stuff. He, he, he sort of sets out salvation like a stall, and He says, here it is, come and get it, or maybe better, here I am, come and get me. And then what we imagine is that the spiritually sensitive or the spiritually wise, they come. They say, oh, yes, of course, I'll seek God. But, but the Bible tells us that that doesn't happen. Sin has affected us so deeply, so radically, the corruption is so radical that there is nothing in us that will move us to God. No one seeks God. No one, not one. Oh, people might seek a God on their own terms. We call those gods idols, false gods. Our hearts are idol factories, Calvin says. But we don't seek the true and living God. So, so it's a pretty damning picture, isn't it? No righteousness with which to impress God, no understanding with which to grasp God, no desire with which to seek God. Picture, the picture is pretty bleak. And the last thing that Paul quotes there is from 
Psalm 36, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Verse 18, it's almost a summary that, that points to the root cause. All this has come about because of our relationship with God. We don't relate to Him properly. We don't treat Him as our Creator and King. We say, we'll go our own way. We'll manage by ourselves. So, this is the starting point as we begin to think about how God saves people. It's the starting point as we start to think about who we are. We are so radically corrupt, radically broken. And, and it's so important to get this right, because if we do, then everything else that we're going to look at over the next number of weeks sort of follows. It, it, it sort of has to. And the question, of course, is not, is this comfortable for us or, or easy for us to hear? We know that it's not. But the question is, is it true? Does God say this about us? And clearly, He does. So, remember our little definition. Sin has affected every aspect of who we are so that we are unable to move towards God. Now, I hope you see that this is what Paul is saying here. Let me tell you what Jesus said. Jesus said in John's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Listen to that again. Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. We are so radically corrupt, that we cannot come to God by ourselves. Things are so bad that we need God. We don't just need a little bit of help from God. We don't need a God who helps those who help themselves. We need a sovereign, rescuing, breaking in God. Now we're nearly out of time, but, but what, what does this mean for us? Let me, let me suggest three things. There's so much more we could say about this, but let me suggest three things. We, we'll probably pick up on some of this as we go through, but, but uh, three things that I think are implications of all of this. First of all is humility. Uh, humility, first of all, this really does cut us down to size, doesn't it? If you're here tonight and you're not yet a Christian, I hope this does a whole number of things for you, but, but I hope it puts to death in you any notion that this will work out okay in the end. We tend to be optimistic about our futures, don't we? We sort of think, I'm sure it'll be okay. I'm sure that somehow God will grave on the, grade on the curve or, or, or that I'll, I'll be able to sort it out sometime in the future. But you see what we've said here? In and of yourself, you, 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 you can't just say, well, do you know what? Next Easter, next Easter, I'll become a Christian. That's when I'll do it. I've got stuff to do before then. But next Easter, I'll do it. We can't do that. It's often our pride, isn't it, that sort of keeps us from God. It makes us think that we'll come to Him on our own terms. And this is saying we're much, much, much too broken for that. So actually, if you find yourself agreeing with this, 
and saying, I know this is what I'm like. Then you need to say to the Lord, start to talk to him and say to him, Lord, you are right. And, and I realize, I need you. I need your help. I need saving. This should engender within us a deep humility, even a brokenness over who we are. The second thing <clears throat> is it, I think, should, should call God's people to prayer. Do, do you know, this is a minor point, but it's been in my head a wee bit. Think about this. How might, as it were, how might Satan be making it more difficult in these days in which we live for people to see and to sense their need? Surely, if he can get people to believe that they are pretty good, that the problem is not them, but the system that they've grown up in, it'll just dull their sense of need, won't it? And wouldn't it be a triumph for him if a whole new generation of people grew up thinking, no one can tell me that I'm wrong? This is the world we live in. Because the way to Christ is through this agreement with God about who we are. The way to heaven is to know not only that we are more loved than we ever dreamed, but we are more wicked than we ever imagined. And so we must pray for our world that God would open eyes that are increasingly being blinded. And then finally, gratitude. So ask yourself this. Many of us here tonight are Christians, I'm sure. Ask yourself this. If this is what I'm naturally like, and it is, so fallen that I would not want to seek God, and yet here I am in church on a Sunday night in Lurgan. Think of all the other things I could do in Lurgan. Well, okay, maybe not that many. But here I am. How did that happen? Well, how did it happen? God did it. He came to you. He saved you. Shouldn't that make you think something? Shouldn't that make you feel something? Shouldn't that make you respond to Him? Shouldn't that make you sing? Love, so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. If you want to be a Christian who's full of praise and thanks, you've got to know just how deep the hole that you were in when God grabbed you. And brothers and sisters, we were in a deep hole. So, humility, prayer, gratitude.